Now we're going to turn to God's Word and we're going to look in Galatians chapter 2 once again. Let me just remind you that we started a series based on what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, a little phrase in that where he talks about the life that I now live. Actually in the New International Version of the Bible, for some inexplicable reason, they've left the word now out of it. But this is a strong emphasis. He's talking about the person that he is now, that he has come to know Christ. And we're picking up on that theme, the life I now live, for one very simple reason. One of the tasks of a preacher is to present the truth of God in a way that people are interested in it. You can present the truth in a way that people aren't particularly interested and their eyes glaze over and it's, it's terrible for the listeners and even worse for the preacher who's thinking, how soon can I get to the benediction? without letting them out early. The theme that we're looking into now is something of universal interest. Everybody's interested in the life they're now living. And so I I trust that as we look into these scriptures together, you'll find something that will be deeply enriching uh, for your own life. Let me read to you from Galatians chapter 2, verse 15. Peter and Paul, two heavyweights in the church, have been going toe-to-toe. There's a big argument going on between these two. There's been quite a rift. But Paul, very wisely in recounting this, does something that you always do when you have a rift with anybody, and that is you try to concentrate on the points of agreement. And notice the points of agreement that Paul brings out here in verse 15. He says, We who are Jews by birth, both Peter and Paul are Jews, and not Gentile sinners, we know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Now you'll notice he says basically the same thing three times in a couple of sentences, which gives you the impression that he's trying to make a point there. And we'll identify that point for you in case you didn't quite see it. Verse 17. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, the theme that I want to draw out of this passage is the fact that Paul is saying, in effect, the life that I now live, I live for God. That is the emphasis that we want to make. The life that I now live, I live for God. God. Don't know if you've noticed, but the the term quality of life is used quite a lot nowadays. Sometimes uh, people who are arguing for the legitimacy of abortion will refer to the fact that perhaps an embryo has some kind of prenatal defect and that therefore the embryo, if it's allowed to come to term, would not enjoy an appropriate quality of life. This becomes a rationale for destroying the embryo. A, a, a rationale that that I reject, uh, of course. Uh, if you if you look at the other end of the scale, it's not surprising that we have similar arguments for euthanasia. 
We look at old people and we look at the circumstances in which they're living, or perhaps some people are in hospital, etc., etc. And the argument then is we should terminate their existence because they're not enjoying the appropriate quality of life. It isn't just the fact that people are alive. Now the emphasis seems to be on the quality of life. The question is who determines what the quality of life is and what the quality of life should be. But it's not just in issues like abortion and euthanasia that the issue of quality of life comes up. You'll hear people talking about this in the sense of the way that they're going about their lifestyles at any particular time. It used to be that people concentrated on making a living. You'll hear people say, why don't you get a life? And the difference, of course, between making a living and getting a life has to do, presumably, with their understanding of the quality of life. What is the content of life? What is the purpose of life? What is it that I am? What is it that I'm intended to be? Os Guinness said this, The trouble is that as modern people, we have too much to live with and too little to live for. Now, think of that. The trouble is that as modern people, we have too much to live with and too little to live for. And that's the big issue. If we're going to talk about quality of life, we've got to admit that it is possible to have all kinds of things to live with, but still not have much sense of what we're here to live for. And I submit to you that if we're going to have a real quality of life, there's going to be a very solid answer to the question, what is it that I'm intended to live for? A number of years ago, actually in 1968, I was invited to go behind the Iron Curtain to minister in Poland and Czechoslovakia. And on that occasion, I stayed in the home of a gentleman who had a son whom I'd met in England. I won't go into the details for the sake of time. Just a month or two ago, I revisited Prague in the now Czech Republic. And I was delighted to eventually find the man in whose home I stayed. And we talked about the brief time that I had in their home in early 1968. Now, those of you who know anything about the history of Central Europe know that 1968 was a critical time for Czechoslovakia. Alexander Dubček had come to power. He was a communist. He was the head of the Communist Party in Czechoslovakia. He was trained in Moscow, and uh, he wrote an article that was published in the paper while I was there, and my friend brought it to me and read it to me uh, in, uh, while I was staying in their home. And this was the essence of the article that Dubček had written. He said that the Marxist experiment was bound to fail. This was 1968. This is a communist leader. He then went on to explain why the Marxist experiment was bound to fail. He said that economically it was not viable. The reason it was not economically viable was that under Marxism, people would not produce. And if they didn't produce, it would not be obviously economically viable. Then he said there are two reasons that people produce. One is that they are allowed to enjoy the products of their production. In other words, there's something in it for me. That's one reason. 
The other reason is that they have a higher cause in which they want to invest their lives. And Dubček said that Marxism was taking away both these things. That under Marxism, the people didn't enjoy the products of their production and there was no higher cause. All they were expected to live for was the state and they were convinced the state was corrupt and so there was nothing to live for and there was nothing to produce for and therefore the experiment would fail. For his trouble, Dubček got shipped off to Moscow for some re-education. He was dismissed from his post and the tanks rolled into Czechoslovakia shortly thereafter. Now, the point that I want to make here is the point that Dubček was making and it was this that people can either live for themselves or they can live for something greater and grander than themselves. There are two ways of living for yourself. One would be in a passive sort of way when all you're interested in is self-gratification. All right, I want to feel good about this. I want to enjoy this. I want to be able to do that. It's all about me and that's what my life is about. Or it could be self-aggrandizement, which is a more active approach. And in that sense, it's a case of amassing all the things that I can get so that I can be what I want to be and have what I want to have. And I think many of us would have to admit that this is a common way that people are trying to live at the present time. They are looking for life, but they're looking for life exclusively as they live for themselves. Now, Lee Iacocca, you remember him? Lee Iacocca, in his autobiography, said this, Here I am in the twilight years of my life, still wondering what it's all about. I can tell you this, fame and fortune is for the birds. Lee Iacocca, the self-made man, the self-absorbed man, the man totally committed to self-gratification and self-aggrandizement at the twilight period of his life, says, and I'm still trying to figure out why I'm here. But I do know this, that fame and fortune won't do it. In other words, living for myself will never produce the quality of life that deep down in my heart I'm longing for. If that is true, and I believe it with all my heart, then presumably the only way we can look is to look for some higher cause than living for ourselves. And many people would say, well, yeah, that's true. I live for my family. And I've got one or two neighbors, and I live for them. And just very, very occasionally, I think in terms of some of the people out there in the world. But basically, it's my family and my immediate neighbors. And I am interested in trying to make their lives better. Well, this is clearly a major advance on just living for myself. But if we're not very careful, instead of just living for me, I find that I'm living for mine. And one thing that we need to be looking at is this. If this proposition is true, that there is a God in heaven, from whom we come, through whom we live, to whom we're accountable, then it should be a no-brainer that if we come from him and live through him and we are accountable to him, it should be a no-brainer that we live for God. That he becomes the over arching principle, the overarching concern, 
of our lives, the dominating factor. There are two reasons that I want to give you very quickly for looking at it from this point of view. The first one is this, that if we begin to understand what it is to live for God, that in and of itself will bring fullness of life for me, and also it will give me the right attitude as far as family and neighbors and the world in which I live are concerned. And the second reason was best summarized by the word of Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo. This is what he said. For you, talking to God in his confessions, you have formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. The simple fact of the matter is this. There is a longing, there is a yearning in the human heart for a quality of life, for a fullness of life that will never ever be satisfied other than in a relationship with the God from whom we come, through whom we live, and unto whom we are accountable. We live for God. If it's quality of life that we're looking for. Now then, if that is the case, we will find ourselves on the same page as the Apostle Paul. For he says in verse 19, for through the law... I died to the law so that I might live for God. But you'll notice, in order to live for God, there are two prerequisites that he now begins to develop for us. The first one we notice in the verse 15 that I, to which I drew particular attention in our reading. And what he's saying there, in effect, is this. Living for God involves being justified by faith. That's the first thing. Living for God involves being justified by faith. The second thing that we notice in verse 19 is this, that living for God involves what he calls dying to the law and being crucified with Christ. Now that's going to be a little harder to understand. But those are two things that we need to explore And we need to understand clearly if we're going to live for God. Living for God then, first of all, involves being justified by faith. Living for God, secondly, involves being crucified with Christ. What does it mean then, first of all, that we are justified by faith? Well, in order to answer that, we need to answer the question, what does it mean to be justified What does it mean to be justified? This this is a term we've got to get clear in our thinking because it occurs over and over again in the New Testament. Now, to be justified is a verb. And clearly, this verb is related to a noun and an adjective. Don't, Don't worry about this too much. The noun and the adjective mean righteousness, that's the noun, or righteous, that is the adjective. The verb related to that then means to declare or to make righteous. So to be justified means to declare to be righteous or to make righteous. What does righteous mean in this sense? Put in very, very simple terms, it means to be made or declared to be in a right relationship with God. Now clearly, if I'm going to live for God, I've got to start by being in a right relationship. Relationship with God. 
Well, why should I assume that that is necessary? And the answer is because Scripture is abundantly clear that we are not by nature, we are not automatically in a right relationship with God. Something has to be done in order that we can not only be in a right relationship with God, but know it. And the only way we can know it will be if God himself declares it. So to be justified has to do with God declaring this person, these persons are justified. They are declared righteous. God says these people are in a right relationship with me. That's where we start. No way we can live for God unless we know what it is to be justified. Now, says the Apostle Paul, to Peter, the other Jew, we Jews, he says, we recognize this, that nobody is justified by the works of the law. No one is justified by the works of the law. Well, what is he talking about there? Well, obviously, Peter and Paul both knew what they meant by the works of the law or by observing the law. They were referring particularly to three particular aspects of the Jewish law, the law that was given to Moses. One of these aspects was observing the Sabbath. The second aspect was the practice of circumcision. And the third one was the necessity for strict dietary rules and for, accordingly, for Jews not to eat meals with Gentiles, whom they called rather derogatively Gentile sinners. Now, here's the issue. It had become abundantly clear to both Paul and Peter that when the gospel was preached, it was preached first of all to Jews, and they understood the gospel, many of them understood the gospel, but they still carried on with some of their Jewish traditions. They still carried on with circumcision, they still observed the Sabbath, they still were very exclusive in their diet and in the way that they would mingle with other people. Okay, so far so good. Then the problem comes when the gospel goes to the Gentiles. Paul, as he goes to the Gentiles, says it is not necessary for the Gentiles to observe the Sabbath. It is not necessary for them to be circumcised. It is not necessary for them to adhere to all the rules and regulations as far uh, as the diets, etc., etc., are concerned. And that is what they mean by all the works of the law. And that's what the argument with Peter and Paul is about because Peter has backtracked on what he used to believe, and he's reverted to the old method. And Paul says this is very, very confusing, and it is fundamentally hypocritical. You say, well, what in the world does this have to do with us today? And the answer is this, that we've got to understand that there's something about human beings that thinks that if you're going to get right with God, you've got to be religious, and you've got to really be good at the religion, And you've got to dot all your religious I's and cross all your religious T's. And if you dot all your religious I's and cross all your religious T's and you're religious enough, at the end of the day, God will say, okay, you're righteous. And so that thinking goes along this line, that a person is justified by observing the law. 
And Paul says, no, that is not how it works. Now, this raises enormous problems. It raises enormous problems for the Jewish people today, obviously. But it raises enormous problems for many religious people today, or many semi-religious people today. Because fundamentally, the idea that people have got is this. If you're going to be right with God, you've got to be religious. And if you're going to be really religious, you've got to make sure you get all your ducks in a row. And if you get enough ducks in enough rows, at the end, God will say, Okay, Buster, you made it. Barely. But that is not what Paul says, and that is not what Peter says. He says, if you're going to live for God, you're not going to do it by being justified by the law. The question then comes up, well, okay, why is that the case? Well, chapter 3, verse 10 tells us. Let me read it to you. All who rely on observing the law, that is, all who rely on being justified by observing the law, listen, are under a curse. Did you hear that? All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Why is no one justified by observing the law? The answer is very simple. Because nobody has ever fully observed it. Nobody has ever fully observed it. You say, well, what's fully observing it got to do with it? Everything. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything. The person who's going to make it by being religious and dotting his religious I's and crossing his religious T's must remember this. He must keep all the law. He must do it all. And he must continually do it all. That rules out being selectively indifferent to certain laws I don't like. It rules out being very religious on a Sunday and just reverting to normal on Monday through Saturday. What it says is the only person who will be justified by the law is somebody who is so religious that every waking moment of their lives they are meticulously keeping every jot and tittle of the law. If they don't, the law condemns them. And that's why no one is justified by the law. In other words, there just isn't anybody who reaches the standard. Now, says the Apostle Paul, if that is the case, somebody's going to ask, well, what in the world is the point of the law? If it has been given to us and nobody keeps it, why in the world give it to us? And he gives us two answers. The first answer he gives us in chapter 3 and verse 24. This is what he says. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by Faith. That's the purpose of the law. The law was put in charge. Now, the Greek word translated put in charge is an interesting word. It is pedagogos. The pedagogos was somebody who lived in the Greek or the Roman household. He was often a very senior, trusted slave. And his job was to look after the young boys in the household. Now, that was quite a job. Dad was too busy doing all kinds of other things. The pedagogos looked after the boys. He ruled them with a rod of iron. 
He saw to their education. He saw to their athletic development. He saw that to all that all that was necessary in order that they should become fine young men. And they were under his almost dictatorial control until they came to the age of majority. And when they came to the age of majority, the pedagogos stepped off the scene. They were free now as mature people to live as they could live in complete freedom. Paul says that's what the law was like. The law was here to keep us under some degree of control. But the law was also there to show us how far short we were coming. Paul goes even further and he says, the law teaches me the exceeding sinfulness of sin. The closer I get to all the gods I said in religious observance, the closer I realize how frail I am, how weak I am, how, how far short I have become. And I begin to understand that the law condemns me. The second picture that Paul gives here is in Romans chapter 7. He says, now here's a man and a woman who are married. And while they're married, the woman goes out and she has some sexual relations with another guy. He said, the word for her is adulteress. That's what she is. She is an adulteress. However, he said, it is possible that the woman and the man are married and the, the man dies. And when the man dies, she is free from the law of her husband. And if she wants to, she can marry somebody else in the same way. He said, we have died to the law as a means of being justified. That is no longer the way we work. It has showed us how sinful we are. And now it has liberated us to come to the only hope that we have. And that is that we will be justified not by observing the law, but by faith in Christ. And that's your only option. If you cannot be justified by your efforts, the only way you can be is by the efforts of somebody else. So Paul says, if we're going to be justified, we're not going to be justified by observing the law. We're going to be justified by faith in Christ. But here's an interesting thing. This expression, faith in Christ, can be taken two ways both of which are probably necessary. The Greek word translated faith is also translated faithfulness. So when it talks about we are justified by faith in Christ, it can mean faith in Christ or it can mean the faithfulness of Christ. Faith in Christ or the faithfulness of Christ. Now, if you're going to put your weight on a floorboard, don't put it on a rotten floorboard. You can put tremendous faith on a rotten floorboard, nothing wrong with your faith, everything wrong with the faithfulness of the floorboard. So when we think in terms of being justified, the first thing we think about is this, the faithfulness of Christ. The faithfulness of Christ to his calling by the Father to come into the world and give his life as a ransom for many. The faithfulness of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, confronting the cross and saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And Jesus goes through with the cross. 
And as Jesus goes through with the cross, he dies on the cross for my sins. His utter faithfulness has made it possible for God to maintain his position of justice, but at the same time declare sinful people right with him. And the basis is what? My religious observance? No, because that was never good enough. The basis of being justified is the faithfulness of Christ and the faith I have exercised in his faithfulness. This is the prerequisite of living for God. You can't live for God if you're not right with God. And you won't know if you're right with God unless God has justified you or declared you righteous because of the merits of Christ. Now, here's the second thing that Paul says here, the second prerequisite. He says, living for God not only involves being justified by faith, it also involves being crucified with Christ. Now, this is a difficult expression, isn't it? You don't feel very crucified with Christ-like. Well, what does that mean? Notice that before he says that, he says in verse 19, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Then he immediately says, I have been crucified with Christ. And so this expression, I have been crucified with Christ, relates to the idea that I died to the law. Let me refer you back to Galatians chapter 3 for a minute. You remember a few moments ago I told you that the Bible says, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. But immediately after that, in verse 13 of Galatians 3, this is what he says. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now here's the picture. When I measure my life against the law, all the religious observance that God has outlined, that I have failed to fulfill, and therefore it does not become a valid means of being declared right by God. When I measure myself against the law, what I discover is this, that the law condemns me. The law condemns me. I hear people say, well, I live by the Ten Commandments. Well, okay, I'm glad to hear that. Tell me what they are. And rarely can they do that. Now, they're saying that this is the guiding principle of of their life, but they don't know what the guiding principles are. But anybody who says that they live by the Ten Commandments, if they're strictly honest about it, they don't live by the Ten Commandments. Nobody fully keeps the spirit of the law as well as the letter of the law. And when when Paul says that the the law condemns me, that's what he's referring to. Now, this is what happened. When Jesus died on the cross, he took our condemnation or the curse of the law. And he became a curse for us. He assumed our condemnation by being condemned by God. He assumed our sin by accepting our sin. He took the judgment of a holy God, which was our judgment, and in so doing, he became a curse for us. What that means then, in a sense, is this. If Christ became a curse for me, the flip side of that is, it's as if I was crucified with Christ. 
If Christ was assuming all my guilt and all my condemnation, then it's as if all my guilt and condemnation was on the cross. And when Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, what he's saying in effect is this, that when Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for the sins of the whole world, and he bore the curse of the broken law, he did it for me. And it's as if I was crucified with Christ. And what that means is this, that the law has no further demand on me because nobody is justified by observing the law. Well, then how in the world am I justified? And the answer is by putting my total faith in the faithfulness of Christ, who himself in his work on the cross and in his resurrection has made it possible for my sins to be forgiven and for God to be totally just And at the same time, declare me righteous. I've been justified by faith, not by observing the law. Now, there's something else comes into the picture now. Something else that actually is the main concern of Paul addressing Peter. And it is this. If a person is not justified by observing the law, the question then is, Well, what is the place of the law in the life of the Christian? Does the Christian now have to live the Christian life by adhering to a whole set of rules and regulations? In this particular instance, does the Christian have to be circumcised? Does the Christian have to be a Sabbatarian? Does the Christian have to have a special diet? Does this Christian have to have his hair a certain length or her skirt a certain length or wear makeup or not wear makeup or engage in all kinds of man-made rules and regulations in order to live the Christian life? This isn't legalism. This is nomism. Legalism is an attempt on the basis of religious observance to be made right with God. Nomism is on the base of religious rules and regulations attempting to live the way you're supposed to live. And what Paul is teaching here is this, that you are no more able to be justified by observing the law than you're able to live the Christian life by simply observing the rules and regulations of the law. You say, oh gee, well that's wonderful. No rules, no regulations. Hey, wonderful. That's what I've been wanting to hear. I have had it up to here with religion. Oh, the church I used to... No, tell me about the church you used to go to. But that's what people always say. Oh, the church I used to go to. We had to do this. We had to do that. We had to do that. And now I don't have to do any of that stuff. That's true. You don't have to do any of that stuff. Do you know what you have to do? You have to live your life in utter, total abandonment to the Lord Jesus who gave everything for you and rose again to live in you in the power of his resurrection so that he becomes the focus of your affection. He becomes the Lord of your life. And your life now is a life where you're able to say something very odd. (laughs) I no longer live, and yet the life that I now live. You say, I beg your pardon? I no longer live, but I now live a life. What does that mean? What that means is that Paul is saying, look, the old man... The old man who used to live a certain way. The old man who used to want to be justified by fulfilling the law, by dotting all his I's and crossing all his T's. He woke up one day and realized he couldn't do it. 
couldn't do it. He was ground down by the law. It killed him. It just depressed him. He tried so hard and hoped that somehow or other it was going to work out, but he never had any peace. He never had any joy. It was just a relentless searching for something that was ephemeral, that it was like a vapor going through his fingers. And then one day he heard that Jesus had borne the curse. And one day he heard that Jesus had died and risen again. And one day he heard that if he put his trust and confidence in the Jesus who died and risen again, that he would be declared righteous by God for Christ's sake, not his own. And Christ, in the power of his resurrection, would come to live in his life. And as Christ, in the power of his resurrection, came to live in his life, the focus would now not be on a lot of religious rules and regulations. The focus would be on living a life of loving communion with the indwelling Lord Jesus. With a great desire to bring him honor, a great desire to please him, a great desire to get to know him better and to be empowered by this tremendous confidence that is that the Lord Jesus Christ now lives in. So who are you living for? How's your quality of life? What is the objective? What is the goal? What is the dynamic? What is the content? What's it all about? Some of you now arriving at the twilight years of your life and you're saying, I'm still trying to figure it out. I'm still trying to figure it out. Some of you... Just beginning life, you're setting off on the track, and it's basically all about I, me, my, and mine. It's a short trip up a cul-de-sac. You get your head in the neck of a sack, and you'll find at the end of your days, it didn't work. You've got to live for him. But in order to live for him, guess what? You've got to make sure that you're justified. And you're not justified by observing the law. You're justified by faith in the faithfulness of Christ. And by recognizing that Christ became the curse for you. And that you, in that sense, were crucified with him. But you're going on living. But the life that you now live, (laughs) you're no longer alive for one very simple reason. That the guy who used to do it the old way isn't around anymore. He's long gone. He's toast. And a new person has come. A person who operates on a relationship with Christ. It's faith in the faithfulness of Christ. One story and I'll let you go. Many years ago when our children were very small, we we took a family vacation. I can't remember when it was or where it was. All I can remember is that we went to the beach and I got bored on the beach after five minutes. Jill wanted to just worship the sun and and I wanted to do something more active. Fortunately, I had three kids with me, so they were more active than mother. So mother just lay on the beach and, and there was a big steep hill behind the beach. And that was beckoning me. And so I said, well, I'm going to climb that hill. And the kids said, we want to come, we want to come. And, and mother said, oh, no, 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 it's too dangerous. I said, come on, let them come. So... Up we go, up the hill. Get to the top of the hill. 
And then we looked down and there's a tiny little mother. And I didn't realize how high the hill was. And I didn't realize how steep it was either. And as we turned to start coming down, I realized that my wife had probably been right. But I haven't admitted it to this day. (laughs) So I said, come on, kids, we've got to get down. We'll have to be very, very careful here. And Judy immediately panics. I can't do it. And her brothers roll their eyes in the back of their head like brothers do with, with sisters. And so I said to the boys, you've got to stay right here. Do not move. Do not move. This is very dangerous. Judy, come on. I'll get you down. I said, get hold of my wrist. She said, I can't hold it. I can't get hold of your wrist. I can't get hold of your wrist. I said, of course you can get hold of my wrist. Get hold of my wrist. I can't get hold of it. I said, why not? She said, it's too big. It's too big. So I said, Judy, look, I'm going to get hold of you. I got you. All right? I'm going to get hold of you, and I'm not going to let go of you. You just get hold of me with as much as you can. There's a picture. The faithfulness of Christ holds me. My faith is weak and faint. So do you know what I concentrate on? I concentrate on the faithfulness of Christ. Concentrate on his finished work. Concentrate on what he's promised. Concentrate on who he is. And as I grow in grace, I begin to discover that my faith grows too. But the important thing is not the volume of my faith. The important thing is the faithfulness of Christ. I don't want any of you to lose any sleep. I've got them all down. But I got Judy down. Why? Because I was able to hold on to her even though at times she had difficulty holding on to me. The great and glorious good news is this. We are called to live for God. It's as simple as that. But before you can be, you've got to know what it is to be justified by faith. You've got to know what it is to be crucified with Christ. And you've got to know what it is then to live by faith. In the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you and risen from the dead lives in you. Let's pray together. Lord, we know that there's something about the way we're wired up in our fallenness that still thinks, subliminally at least, that we're justified by observing the law. It is so ingrained in our fallen thinking. And that's why it's so necessary before we can start rethinking that we've got to do some de-thinking. Help us simply to face up to the fact that it is perfectly obvious that the law simply condemns us because we come so short. And that what the law did in condemning us was deliver us over to Christ so that we'd be free to be related to him and live in the conscious enjoyment of the glad freedom that is ours in slavery to Christ. You're not liberating us in order that we might simply misbehave ourselves. You're freeing us from the demands of the law 
in order that we might live in loving communion with the Lord Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. Write this deeply on our hearts and send us away with a deep desire not to live for ourselves, not to live for our slightly magnified personal interests, but to live for you and to do it the way you've demanded, the way you've outlined that it alone can be done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.